What's happening? What's happening? Hello, my name is Brad Harden, and I'm the host of the brand new show here on the Hoop Ball Network, Hoop Ball Hawks, where we cover everything regarding the Atlanta Hawks, from box score breakdown, training camp, free agency, the rumor mill, you love John Collins, you love Ice Trey, you love JR Crickets, well, check us out, follow us at Hoop Ball Hawks on Twitter, follow myself at Brad Jarrett. Six, seven on Twitter, and we hope y'all check us out. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. Hold the fantasy. It is Wednesday. <laughs> I had to look it up again. Got to get better at this. Pandemic. You've, you've really you've won this round. It's Wednesday on Fantasy NBA Today. I'm your host, Dan Bespris. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, or just Google search Dan from HoopBall. And, of course, that means that this is a HoopBall presentation. Hoop-Ball.com is the website. At Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter, at Hoopball Tweets, if you want the umbrella Twitter handle that keeps you up to date on everything going on in the Hoopball universe, including incredible episodes of Today in Sports Betting. Got to give a big shout out to those guys at the start of today's episode. Just clobbering baseball, hockey, soccer. It's been this unbelievable role. College football, the NFL, clobbering all the things. I don't follow. Almost any, I follow baseball. I don't bet baseball, but I follow it. I don't follow any of those other things. I'm just sitting here putting a few bucks on each of their plays. And ever, because I'm a little bit of a wimp with it, uh, just slowly watching the bankroll go up, which is really a lot of fun. Uh, they have these great episodes. It's been this whole week they've been doing this. Uh, just incredible, incredible guests on Today in Sports Betting. Uh, Jonathan Von Tobel, Paul Carr. They've got our good buddy uh, Sam Periodovic on coming up on the podcast this is all Today in Sports Betting is the name of the show. You must, must, must check it out. You must check it out. It's not just basketball. They cover every sport on the planet and how you can make money off of it over at mybookie.ag. That's where we're doing all of our work. I know many of you guys signed up a couple weeks ago when they had that crazy bet available on the Chiefs. That's probably not going to be happening for the next little bit. So you're going to have to go back to just winning money the old-fashioned way by picking winners, by following our guys as they pick winners by following me as I give you winners here on this podcast. We've been breaking down the NBA playoffs and just annihilating totals, just annihilating them, annihilating them. So sign up now, mybookie.ag, promo code HOOPBALL on the third page of sign up is where you can put in the promo code, unlocks all these different deposit bonuses if you want to use those. If not, you don't have to, but either way, you do need to use the pro- the, the coupon code. Otherwise, uh... We need to make sure that they know we sent you because that is what keeps all these promotions available. That's what allows them to run these things like the Chiefs plus 54. If we're continuing to bring in fresh meat, they think they've got you. They think they've got you, but they don't. What they don't know is that you're following the Hoopball Gaming guys and you're doubling, tripling, quadrupling, and just growing your bankroll slowly but surely. Don't go crazy. That's how they get you. We'll grow it. It'll get big. You'll buy stuff with it. It's sweet. Easy deposits. Easy withdrawals. 
maybe the most important part of sports betting on the internet right now. Easy withdrawals from our buddies over at mybookie.ag. Promo code, once again, is HoopBall. Tonight, Boston-Miami Game 4. Been waiting a long time for it. It's here. They last played on Saturday. Had a long layoff there. Saturday's game, by the way, Boston won 117-106. Covering the three-and-a-half point spread. They were down two games to none. There was an expectation that they would finally get one. Very similar to Denver, getting one as well. Uh, each team that was down 2-0 won game three. And both did it with high-scoring performances. Boston putting up 117. We'll, of course, talk about Lakers-Nuggets, uh, the recap of yesterday's ballgame a little bit later on in the podcast. But I want to focus more on the evolution of the Eastern Conference Finals since that's the game we're breaking down first. Boston putting up 117 points. They did it with a big ball game from Jalen Brown, who did a better job of getting nearer to the rim, did not settle for the three-pointer as often. Jason Tatum had 25 points on 20 shots. Marcus Smart, 20 points on 10 shots. He made all eight free throws he took down the stretch in that ball game. And by all accounts, Kemba Walker was actually not terrible in that game either. 21 points as well. They had four guys break the 20-point barrier. Having Gordon Hayward back seemed to be helpful for the Celtics from a facilitation standpoint. He didn't get too heavily involved in the offensive attack, but he does make them better. He makes them better, and he makes them uh, sharper at the offensive end. Just better ball movement. They had 27 assists in the ballgame, and things looked pretty good for Boston as they broke down what Miami had been doing. And part of the way that they did that was by limiting Goran Dragic on the Miami side and then doing a better job of attacking the defenses that Miami presented to them. They were able to get a lot of fouls called. Both teams were, actually, in this game. It was an extraordinarily high foul ball game. Uh, They rebounded well, out-rebounded Miami 50-42, to and they shut Miami down, the Heat shooting just 39% from the field, while still managing to put up 106 points in the ballgame. And that, I think, is probably the stressing point here, is that that's a game... That Again, we're going all the way back to Saturday's Game 3. That's a game that actually could have been even higher scoring. Boston overperformed their expected mark by 3. They were expected to score 114 points based on how they played in this game. They scored 117, uh, likely due to good foul shooting. That's the because their turnovers were pretty much league average. Their shooting was fine. Nothing spectacular or unspectacular there. They just shot 87% on 30 foul shots, and that was uh, that's a good clip. We shoot 87% on freebies. That's, that's a way to rack up some points. So they went over by three. So you're saying, okay, well, how could this game really have gone farther over? Well, because Miami vastly underperformed their mark. They actually should have been at around 115 based on the speed of the ball game. So they underperformed by nine, meaning the teams actually, despite scoring 223 points combined, this game was actually on pace for 229. That's how fast they played. There were a ton of possessions in this game. I think of it, think of it from this perspective. The turnovers were not very high. So it's not like... It was a back and forth of guys just coughing up the basketball. There weren't a ton of steals, uh, but both teams got 85 field goal attempts and attempted 30 or more free throws. That's a lot. That is a ton. That is an absolute ton. And you can go and you can sort of, you know, you you can break down a little bit how the game shook itself out. Yes, 
it was a high-scoring fourth quarter. The first and third quarters were slightly under the posted total. First quarter was 53 points. Third quarter was 50. The second and fourth quarters, they scored 60 apiece. And so you kind of have to make some judgment calls there. Obviously, in the fourth, things, you know, the teams shot the ball well, and then it slowed down, and there were free throws and so forth. But first, second, and third, you can't make those same arguments, and it comes down to whether or not shots were going in, and do you think that this can be, uh, can they exceed this mark? Now, remember, that number was 209. The fact that today's total is not that far off from that mark, but has been bet up is a little bit disconcerting. It opened around 210. It's up to 212 already, which is wiping out some of our value because almost undoubtedly, the adjustment to be made between ball games is on the Miami defensive side. They need to find a way to slow down Boston so they're not getting quite as many good and easy looks at the offensive end. On the flip side, Miami's probably going to be better offensively in this game coming up. They moved Marcus Smart over to Goran Dragic to slow him down, so it's going to have to be more Jimmy Butler probably earlier for Miami. He needs to be a bigger factor from the outset. I know he likes to sort of ease into the ball game and get everybody involved and and sort of set the tempo, but they needed him, and it took him probably a little bit too long to sort of say, all right, I got I to gotta go do some stuff. I got to go make some things happen, as opposed to kind of cruising into the ball game a little bit. So when you when you look at it from that perspective, and they hit that 223 mark, and the total is on its way up, the thought process has to be, which has a larger impact? There's sort of three things that were rolling into one ball for our breakdown of this ballgame. Thing number one is, how much can Miami curtail Boston's offense? Meaning, can they limit the foul shots? That's actually a case on both sides. Can they slow down the 48% shooting? Can they improve on their own rebounding? So Boston's not beating them up by some by almost 20% in that regard. Are, are those things they can do to bring Boston back down? Because remember, the Celtics shot 48% in that ballgame. Boston shot uh, a, a cool 50% in the previous game, but had 20 turnovers, and that's the, the almost the full-on reason for that one falling apart at the seams. Boston shot 44% in the opener of this series. One thing to keep in mind, too, is that the pace of these ballgames has actually been relatively high. The teams uh, looking at, at their first few games, the pace of Game 1 was around two, low 220s. The pace of Game 2 was seemingly a bit of an outlier here, um, but still not all that low. Miami pace was 106. Uh, Boston pace was 104. So that was still at 210. That was the slowest game so far. The pace of game two, which had very few foul shots, pretty good offense, uh, and Boston, a a boatload of turnovers. If they don't turn the ball over as often as they do, that game probably goes over the total as well. But the total's been climbing now, and the question to answer becomes, okay, if Miami can slow down Boston a little bit, do they also ratchet up their own offense to a point that sort of counterbalances whatever they've done defensively can Miami do they now score more even though they're holding Boston to less if they hold Boston to 110 what if they get to 110 themselves what's to stop them from scoring four additional points and then the third factor is 
is there a natural slowing of the ball game? This game was fast. There were a lot of foul shots, not a ton of turnovers, but what if the game is roughly the same speed as the last one and they're just not getting to the free throw line? They have to actually do it with just pure straight making buckets. Then it comes down to field goal percent. And does that, is that now lower? Is it too much lower for Boston to atone for not being able to get, you know, 25 ish, 26 points at the free throw line? I think that as we look at this ball game, 212 on the total is still just a little bit too low. I think there's been an expectation that these teams are going to grind it out a little bit, but that hasn't really been the strategy on either side. Both teams are trying to get going before the defense gets locked in. This is a different series than the last one each of these two teams played. Remember Miami, they wanted to slow down Milwaukee. Their goal in that series was to get it into the half court, wall off Giannis, and see what the Bucks could actually come up with. Boston, similar thing. They wanted to get back and stop Toronto's fast break. Toronto had one of the best fast-breaking teams in the NBA. The Lakers are actually up there as well. I mean, Denver's running a, a situation here this series that parallels what teams like Boston and Miami tried to do in their last series. But now, Boston and Miami are playing each other, and neither one of these teams came into this series with the mindset of, okay, our, our, we have to be laser-focused on stopping the fast-break opportunities of the opposing team. In fact, they're they seem quite content at times to get up and chuck a little bit. And I don't know that a long layoff is going to, is going to change much of that. You know, these guys have energy. They're going to come out. They're going to be bouncy. You know, how does that impact offense versus defense? You're going to see some quick shots. We've seen it in each of the three games of this series so far that there have been stretches where the teams are just firing. The pace has been generally pretty high. 210 was the lowest. The highest, almost 230. There was a 220 in there. The This total, at when it opened around 210, I thought, there's still some room on the over. It's closing now with the total coming up uh, roughly two points since that opening line. I, I think it opened at 210, or maybe it opened near there, came down, bounced up. With, I don't know the exact number in front of me here. Um, and depending where you look, you might have a different opening number because you know certain place sets the line, then everybody else kind of reflects off of that and, and how initial money's coming in. Uh, but it's on the move upward because that last game was so high scoring. And it's probably, by all accounts, more the public side. But guess what? The public still wins like 49% of the time. <laughs> 48% of the time, you know? It's not... You you pick your opportunities to get on either side. You don't just follow sharp money because they've already moved the line. There's so much of this like, well, what side is the what side are the sharps on? They're on the side where they think they have line value. And if that meant... You know, are they going to wait until this line is up at like 214 if it gets that high and then bet the other way? That's a possibility. Did they take the over early and that's why the line jumped and now we're all dealing with a clunkier line? That's a possibility as well. Still, when you look at how these games have gone between these two teams, you kind of have to look at the over until they give you a reason to go the other way. Even with the one game that went under only did it because the teams, because Boston had too many turnovers and they, the officials weren't blowing the whistle at all. So you can, la you can look at that element as well. Is the officiating crew, is it, you know, is it the same as Game 2? How are they going to be calling this thing? Are there going to be free throws at all? I think it still goes over. 
the projected number, Vegas gives you a projected number based on the total and the spread, would be Boston 108, Miami 104. I'd be pretty surprised if Miami doesn't get more points than 104 in this ballgame. I think they clear that mark. Uh, I think Boston around 108 seems quite reasonable. I think Miami around 110 seems quite reasonable. I think this goes over by about five points. So, you know, you're not going to be breathing easy, right? And down at the end of the ball game, it might be right around the number. You might be at like 210 with a minute and a half to go and thinking it's a tight ball game. Are they just going to exchange zeros for the next three or four possessions? So, you know, nothing is a sure thing. But I do have a lean to the over on this game, and I like Miami catching three and a half points. I think it's going to be a close ball game. Um, am I getting down on either of these things? I'm, I think I'm more inclined to get down on the over, but that's the direction I'm leaning on both elements in this ball game. That's the direction I'm leaning on the total, and that's the direction I'm leaning on the side. As far as yesterday goes, Denver is on the board, and they probably should have been on the board after game two. But Anthony Davis staved off that situation. And there was nothing that anybody could do to stave off the situation yesterday. The Lakers were awful for about the first uh, 38 minutes of this ballgame. I mean, really bad. Like, real bad. Turnovers were high. Missed their free throws. Committed too many fouls. They made a bunch of buckets when they were able to get near the rim. Like, Anthony Davis still had a pretty good shooting game. LeBron ended up with a good shooting game, but he got off to a pretty slow start in this thing as well. And it took a furious zone defense, crazy fourth quarter run for the Lakers to make it a ball game. It was fun near the end, but they, you know, they were down 20, so they had no business being there anyway. Let's look at it a bit more from a schematic standpoint. We expected uh, the Lakers would have a plan for Denver's pre-rotating on defense. And to a certain degree, they did. You know, the Lakers actually got a fair number of good looks in this ballgame. They shot 52% for the game overall, which obviously is pretty darn good. Uh, But a lot of those makes were right around the rim. They were obviously very good at making layups because they're a big, strong team but they sort of slipped back into what had plagued them in their loss to Portland, the game, the very first game of the playoffs, and then uh, less so, but also a little bit that game one loss to Houston, and I'm trying to find the box score of that one because i got to go way back to when the Lakers were still losing games to the Rockets. There it is, September the 4th. Uh, the Lakers lost that game 112 to 97, uh, and they shot 11 for 38 on three pointers in that game, 29%, which was acceptable, but not very good and not nearly as pronounced as that Lakers first loss to the Blazers, which we got to go way back. Where the hell is that one? We can find it. Uh, there it is. August 18th, <laughs> Lakers lost 100 to 93, uh, and the Lakers shot 16% from three-point land in that ballgame. They were five for 32. They'd actually been pretty good from downtown in most of the games since then. Even the 29% of the, against the Rockets was not that horrible of a performance uh, from three-point land. They just they didn't defend anybody. The ballgame yesterday against the Nuggets, there were so many things the Lakers should have done better. But 6 for 26 from downtown is not going to get it done. 
couple other notes. First of all, I, you know, I expect the Lakers to shoot the ball better from three-point land in their next ball game because a lot of those looks were wide open. I can think of three Danny Green wide open three-pointers that rimmed in and out. I can think of a Caruso three-pointer that rimmed out. Late in the ball game, the Lakers were down three multiple times. I think they were down three once and four the other time. KCP had that wide open three-pointer to tie it. Kuzma had a wide open three-pointer to get within one. Both of those rattle out. Uh, and so, you know, off the top of my head, I can think of five completely wide open three-pointers that the Lakers missed. And obviously the Nuggets missed a few threes as well. But from a kind of make-miss standpoint, the Nuggets were far better on shots than the Lakers were on shots. That's not to say the Nuggets didn't just have better opportunities through most of the ballgame. The fact that the Lakers lost by only eight points is a bit of a mirage in this game because... Late in the ballgame, the Nuggets committed five consecutive turnovers. They ended up losing the turnover battle, but only because of that. They'd, they'd been winning it for the entire ballgame. Lakers had 64 of their 106 points in the paint. They scored only 42 points outside the paint in yesterday's ballgame. The Nuggets, as a point of comparison, had 66 points outside the paint. They were basically a flip of one another, and I think... You know, that tells you a lot of what you need to know f about strategy going forward. The Lakers are always going to be good if they can get into the paint. Anthony Davis, LeBron James, these guys are unreal when they get around the bucket. But the three-point shooting for this team has kind of come and gone this year. It's been generally good in the playoffs because they've been generally wide open. But the Nuggets sped them up just a little bit in this ballgame. And that was enough to force a few extra misses from downtown. Things that could have changed the momentum of the ball game, I think, pretty dramatically earlier in the game. So shooting is number one as you look towards the next one. I think the Lakers will will, I hope, as you know, as a Laker fan, I think the Lakers will look at the next game and say, look, we're probably gonna make a few more shots. And from that standpoint, we will be a little bit more competitive. But even if they had been shooting the ball better the first three quarters, they probably would have been down 10 instead of 20. That would not have fixed their deficit completely. It would have been far less ugly. And then maybe they could have, you know, yanked out the zone defense and maybe even moved in front on their little spurt they went on. Who knows how that fourth quarter would have gone if the Lakers were down 10 instead of 20 when it all got going. Um... But from a, a, a make-or-miss standpoint, they still would have been losing, even if they had made a few more three-pointers or a few more long twos or a few more of their free throws or whatever you want to talk about. That's not the exclusive reason why the Lakers were getting clubbed. Reason number two the Lakers got clubbed. They got out-rebounded by 19 in this game. Lakers have basically been mauling teams on the glass throughout the playoffs. And I know they lost the rebounding battle in uh, game one of this series with the Nuggets, but some of that was due to garbage time. Um, just sort of a, a weird game. The Lakers made everything early, and then, it, and then the Nuggets kind of closed the gap late. But after the teams had stopped playing, was all the reserves doing it. So you can throw a little bit out in that game one. In general... In these playoffs, the Lakers have been obliterating teams on the glass. So to lose by 19 rebounds was an overwhelmingly odd number. I mean, that's big. That is really big. 
Uh, turnover battle was close. Uh, free throw battle definitely went the Nuggets' way. They attempted seven more and shot about 18% better. Uh, 16? 16% better at the free throw line, so that was a big win for Denver. But that doesn't explain a few key things. Like, for instance, uh, the the 44 rebounds for the Nuggets. That's, that's absurdly high. Jamal Murray had eight, Jokic 10, Millsap 8. LeBron had 10 for the Lakers. No one else on the team had more than four, and that was Danny Green. Offensive rebounds. Nuggets had nine. Lakers had only four. That's that's just an energy stat. That's all that is. That's an energy stat. The Nuggets were in there fighting. All five guys on the floor were in there fighting for rebounds all the time. They would not let the Lakers get to the glass. And some of that is because for long stretches in this game, Denver didn't really have any obvious defensive breakdowns. You know, Anthony Davis, two dribbling into a long two-pointer is not a great way to set yourself up for an offensive rebound. For one, he's the guy that's probably going to go get the offensive rebound. So if he's 20 feet away taking the jumper, that takes him out of that particular opportunity. Uh, The Nuggets did a really good job of boxing out. The Lakers needed to find a way to move bodies around and get off a rhythm shot when bodies were moving. And that's how guys can get in and and snatch offensive rebounds. It's what the Nuggets were doing for most of the ballgame. Getting open looks, taking them, and then when they missed them, the Lakers were out of position to box people out, and the Nuggets could go and snatch a rebound. So effort was an issue on the Lakers' side. Offensive scheme was a little issue on the Lakers' side, not that big. I think as they look at this game, they'll probably say we could we could fix a few things on offense, but overall, it really wasn't it wasn't that bad, it wasn't that horrible offensively. It wasn't good. It was somewhere in between what they had done in game one and for most of game two, and then kind of soiling themselves late in game two. To me, you know, I know Rajon Rondo ran the zone beautifully in the fourth quarter, but he's a guy that needs to be, he needs his minutes trimmed in this game if they're not running a gimmick defense. He played 30 minutes in that game yesterday, and and he earned them late, but he was a massive liability in the first and second quarters, and even in the third. Because the Nuggets are not afraid of him. They're not paying any attention to that dude when he's out on the perimeter on offense. He did enough offensively from a penetration standpoint to make a case for those extra minutes. But, you know, just from their normal defensive alignments, he wasn't doing his job in, when they were going man and they were trying to figure out how to switch things. He was out of place. He wasn't rotating fast enough. And then, yeah, I mean, he sort of salvaged his case in the fourth quarter. So, I, you know, the Lakers have to figure out a better way to use Rondo in their next ball game if, if they're going to use Rondo. Dwight Howard started the second half, but the foul situation picked up quick. He only had one rebound in the game. I mean, that's another thing. Like, the, the Nuggets just wanted it more. Caruso was bad in this one, which has been pretty rare for him. The Lakers were bad. LeBron was the only Laker who had himself a nice ball game, and even he had six turnovers that needs to be cut down. It's a bad game. It's a bad game. And then finally, you got to give credit. You know, you have to continue to give credit. Yeah, the Lakers, like, they could have done more on offense. They tried some stuff on defense for three and a half quarters that just was weird and didn't work at all. Uh, and then they Then they ran some gimmicky stuff that worked great. But overall... Think about some of the shots the Nuggets were hitting. Jeremy Grant, runners, floaters, three-pointers. That dude didn't miss yesterday. He was great at the free-throw line. 
Jamal Murray hit those two three-pointers, the step back, the 30-footer. Jokic hit the desperation heave. Everybody on the Nuggets was hitting really tough shots. Remember how I talked about in Game 2, the Lakers were able to avoid losing the game because they hit tough shots? The Nuggets hit tough shots in this one, and that helped them build up their lead. So while the Lakers missed some, the Nuggets made some. And like I said, you know, the effort side, I think, still would have put the Nuggets in the driver's seat in this ballgame going into the fourth quarter. But I think it would have been more like an 8-10 to 10 point game, 6-10 to 10 point game, as opposed to, you know, 15-20. to 20. And I think the Lakers, they can get in their huddle between games and say, look, if we just, if the, if the make-miss stuff evens out and we play just the way we did yesterday, which wasn't very good, we'll probably be down six to eight points in the fourth quarter, which isn't good, but it is something. And on the Nuggets side, they can say, look, we're probably not going to hit shots at this clip every night, so we got to come up with something else. We got to make another adjustment to make sure that the Lakers don't sort of gain ground on the adjustment battle. And we'll talk more about how all that shakes out for Game 4 on tomorrow's podcast. We'll, we'll make a look towards the future because this game did move along at a pretty good clip, but the Nuggets overperformed. The Lakers actually overperformed a little bit as well. Uh, nope, excuse me, I got that, I got that wrong. Lakers underperformed by uh, a hair due to poor foul shooting and a couple too many turnovers. Despite shooting 52% from the field, um, they just needed to rebound better. So, you know, I mean, simplistic view, the Lakers are going to look at the rebounding battle and say that that just can't happen. So you're going to see uh, greater intensity, I think, from everybody on the glass. There was a lot of standing around. And then from a scheme standpoint, I think you're going to see the Lakers maybe drift back a little bit more towards what they did the first two games, which was, look, if, if the Nuggets are going to work this hard at getting Jokic on someone in the post, then, you know, make him a scorer again. Make him exclusively a scorer. Like, they, they tried, the Lakers tried so hard in that game yesterday to not let the Nuggets get those switches that other guys ended up out of place. They were bringing other bodies, and the Nuggets were ready for it. Not a good game if you're a Laker fan. Very good game if you're a Nuggets fan. They played their asses off. They deserved that game. They deserved to win it by more than eight points. All right, that's your breakdown of yesterday's game and today's game. I uh, want to get you your time machine of the day. The great Adam King has once again provided us with a time machine look. This day in history, September the 23rd, going backwards two years ago. We actually had nothing from 2019. Two years ago, Woj reported that the Cavs were pursuing a Jimmy Butler trade after Cavs owner Dan Gilbert was seen talking to Wolves owner Glenn Taylor. Ha! <laughs> yeah, not quite. 2017, Ennis Cantor was traded to the Knicks as part of a Carmelo Anthony deal. 2016, Jeff Hornacek. Yeah said that he doesn't see Derrick Rose and Brandon Jennings playing next to each other too often. Kevin Garnett announced his retirement four years ago today. And Wolves owner Glenn Taylor told WCCO Radio that Nikola Pekovic will not play this season and may be bought out. Remember Peck? That guy was a wild boar on a basketball court. Stout, woolly man, just dominating people inside but could never stay healthy. I love it. These are like, like, it's so easy to forget about these types of things. Pekovic, Derek Rose and Brandon Jennings on the same team. And is Cantor involved in a mellow deal? I love it. I love it. 
Thank you, Adam. Much appreciated on all of that. Adam King 91 on Twitter, if you want to give him a follow. Uh, shout out to Adam and his daily trip in his Wayback Machine. The Wayback Machine. Uh, other things available at Hoopball this morning, if you want to check them out. I know I told you about those two amazing shows from our guys over at Today in Sports Betting. Uh, Greg Mraz has a uh, Hoopball Bulls podcast out with Jacob Niffen of the Uncontested. Jacob covers the Thunder. He's giving uh, Greg a breakdown of Billy Donovan, the new head coach of the Chicago Bulls. I have no thoughts on that. I don't know that anyone has thoughts on that because it is like the ultimate in let's just get someone in here who has pedigree and isn't a dummy. That's it. Billy Donovan is just like your standard NBA head coach. Although I, I felt similarly about Frank Vogel when he came in to coach the Lakers, and he's actually shown himself to have uh, a few tricks up his sleeve with a good coaching staff. Anything. Listen, I know uh, Charles Barkley said that the head coach of the Bulls is the third worst job in the world behind uh, the captain of the Titanic and his personal trainer. I disagree. I actually think the head coach of the Bulls is one of the best jobs in the world right now because everyone's dream in life should be to follow one of the worst people in the world at that exact same job. Think about how low the bar is in Chicago right now. Jim Boylan just got in there and had diarrhea for a year and a half. That was his entire coaching playbook. You cannot be worse than that. You simply cannot. There's a funny video I, I retweeted. It's circulating on the internet now of Zach Levine finding out his new head coach while playing Call of Duty. And his reaction was just like, oh, he's a good coach. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for someone where the players can look at the name and say, oh, that's a good coach. He is respected. He is not super special. But he's also not a, a chunk of coal. He's not a coal in the stocking. He's like, what did you need for the holidays? I, I could really use some more shirts. He's like shirts for the holidays. You don't get too excited about it, but you need them. They're useful. So I guess that's news. I suppose that's news. Um, there are rumblings of Mike D'Antoni to the Sixers, but it's not a sure thing yet. Uh, definitely check out all this cool stuff we got going on. DFS today, uh, always uh, fantastic work from those guys. Two-day breakdowns now. Today in sports betting, Hoopball Bulls. Hoopball Heat has a pregame show out from our guy Joe Stroh. These guys are working hard, man. Show them some love. And that's your show for us over here. Hope we got you a good breakdown today. I'm Dan Vespers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. Hold the fantasy. Enjoy Game 4, Miami, Boston tonight. Back with you another episode on this one tomorrow morning. You know how it works. Have a great day, everybody. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.